Good afternoon, everybody. Please do uh, keep on uh, getting yourself some food as we go along. I want to say welcome to uh, the first of our Lunch and Learn series for this Holy Week in 2019. Um, there is plenty of food, and it will keep on appearing miraculously from the kitchen, uh, so don't hesitate to continue to um, nourish yourself. We will begin just in a short while, and I'm going to offer a brief introduction. If you were here yesterday, I'll offer a briefer one, uh, but it's a great honor and pleasure for us to welcome back, it's been a long time since uh, yesterday afternoon, uh, the Professor Luke Timothy Johnson, who began this series really yesterday on Palm Sunday, and, and is continuing the series that the, the each of the three speakers in Holy Week will uh, have and speak about, which is Prophetic Jesus, Prophetic Church. Just to say a little bit about Professor Johnson, uh, he is the uh, Candler School of Theology's Robert W. Woodruff Professor Emeritus, uh, which is Emory's most distinguished endowed chair. Um, had taught at uh, Little Rome University on the East Coast by the name of Yale, uh, Yale Divinity School and Indiana University prior to arriving at Candler in 1992. If you are a student of the New Testament studying in a U.S. seminary and, in fact, well beyond, you will most likely have come across Professor Johnson's The Writings of the New Testament and Interpretation. Uh, I've seen that in at least three continents now. Um, it, it is considered to be one of the core textbooks has written over 31 books, 70 scholarly articles, 100 popular articles, and nearly 200 book reviews. Um, there is um, a great deal more to be said uh, about your, um, but I will, I will stop here, but about your co uh, contribution to the academy. We are so blessed that you are coming here to contribute to our common life in the beginning of this Holy Week. Professor Johnson, welcome. I didn't get that reverb that you usually get with sound. I'm delighted to be your noontime entertainment. Um, <laughs> the world that swooshes by us in traffic uh, this morning sees this week as just a lovely spring week, and perhaps today is the loveliest of spring days. But to those of us who gather in the name of Jesus, it is the week of all weeks, leading to the day of the resurrection, when we celebrate once again the mystery that God has so embraced us as to go through death as we do, so that we might share life with him. My two sessions with you are tied together by Luke's portrayal of Jesus as a prophet. Yesterday, we thought about prophecy as putting your body where your mouth is. And we thought about how Jesus' royal entry into the city of Jerusalem and his cleansing of the temple of merchants was the climax of his entire ministry as the prophet king who represented the lowly and the outcast. This morning, I want to look a little more closely at the section of the gospel between that royal entry and Jesus' actual arrest, trial, and execution. For liturgically-minded Christians, by whom, of course, I mean Catholics and high-grade Episcopalians like you, they thought may sometimes have occurred what was happening at the start of the week? We know about Spy Wednesday when Judas betrayed Jesus. We know about Monday Thursday when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. We certainly know about Good Friday when Jesus is crucified and Holy Saturday when he lies in the tomb. But what was happening on Monday and Tuesday, they don't even have names. 
It seldom, of course, occurs to liturgical Christians to look so embarrassingly evangel evangelical uh, as to look at the Gospels. But in fact, they at least tell us what they thought was going on in that interim. Both Luke and Matthew follow their common source, Mark, in this section of the narrative. They all agree to insert, after Jesus driving the merchants out of the temple, and which was the act that precipitated his uh, arrest and death, between that and the actual arrest and trial, a curiously lengthy interlude of talking rather than acting. They all portray Jesus as teaching daily in the temple to a crowd that hung upon his words, but also in the presence of those who were trying to figure out how to get rid of this populist prophet without turning the crowd against themselves or causing the kind of riot for which Passover Jerusalem was notorious in the first century and which sometimes brought on savage reprisals from the occupying Roman garrison. The scene is set by Luke immediately following Jesus' declaration that they had made his father's house of prayer into a den of thieves. Luke says, every day he was teaching in the temple area. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people, meanwhile, were seeking to put him to death, but they could find no way to accomplish their purpose because all the people were hanging on his words. They were stymied. So they fall back on the tried and true device of verbal entrapment. They can diminish and destroy this prophetic pretender by forcing him to, as we would put it nowadays, misspeak himself. This part of the Synoptic Gospels features a series of verbal encounters between Jesus and the leaders of various Jewish groups of the first century. Each group gets to pose a question to which Jesus responds, after which Jesus turns and asks them a question about David's son, and then with an attack on their economic corruption and their oppression of the poor. He says, in the presence of all the people, Jesus said, be on guard against the scribes, these are the lawyers, who go about in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and places of honor at banquets. They devour the houses of widows and as a pretext recite lengthy prayers. They will receive a very harsh condemnation. So the interlude ends with Jesus still standing in the temple, prophetically announcing to his followers the fall of the temple. Not a stone of it will stand upon another and the destruction of the city, a prediction which in fact comes true 40 years later. Now, we have to ask what narrative purpose is served by gathering together here this set of exchanges uh, between Jesus and those hostile to him. He could have had these exchanges at any time during his ministry, but the gospel writers gather them here in this place. Uh, for the earliest church, I think it, it helped position Jesus and therefore themselves, followers of Jesus, among the other groups within first century Judaism, the scribes, and Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, each of them get to ask a question to which Jesus responds. And they ask questions typical of their sect's position. So the Sadducees 
who don't believe in the resurrection asked Jesus a trick question concerning the resurrection. You remember this one, the woman who marries seven husbands, you know, whose, whose wife will she be? Uh, so that gives us a kind of a glimpse of what the Sadducees sort of held. <laughs> but for the evangelists, for the evangelists themselves, I think this series of exchanges provides a dramatic spacing between Jesus' entry into the city and his execution, and it shows a steady intensification of conflict between this backcountry prophet and the powers that be. It reveals the deep divide between the kingdom proclaimed by Jesus and the business-as-usual kingdom of the world. And for us, it offers the opportunity to think about another aspect of Jesus as prophet, namely speaking truth in the face of deceit. So let's allow our imaginations to envisage the scene suggested by Luke. Imagine the enormous space of the temple precincts, a vast area, roughly five football fields by three football fields, 300 yards by 500 yards in extension. There, a tiny corner is occupied by Jesus and the followers who have followed him from Galilee and are now being drawn to his teaching. There as well on the edges are the agents and the scouts sent by the established leaders to trap him, not simply to embarrass him, but to eliminate him. Now, mind you, Jesus had never been shy about naming and condemning the opponents of God's kingdom who served Satan's realm. While in Galilee, and while on his journey to Jerusalem, he pronounced woes over the rich and the comfortable, had warned those who seek first places at banquets that they would be brought low, had extensively condemned the Pharisees and the lawyers who cleansed the outside of bowls but were all corruption within. And when he was warned that King Herod was seeking his life, he said, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and I perform healings today and tomorrow and on the third day I will accomplish my purpose, yet I must continue on today and tomorrow and the following day, for it is impossible for a prophet to die outside Jerusalem. But Jesus is now not in an idyllic spot in Galilee. This is the city of David. This is the big city, the home of government, of religion, of military power. This is where people get crucified. Mr. Deeds has come to Washington <laughs> and is standing on the steps of the Capitol facing the cameras and the microphones. The analogy is not at all far-fetched. This set of exchanges, if played out dramatically, would resemble nothing so much as a contemporary press conference in our politics today, with the sophisticated and the savvy questioners always in search of the gotcha moment that will bring down the populist pretender. Our interest today, then, is on another dimension of prophecy, how it means speaking the truth in that kind of context. I will focus only on two of these exchanges, the question concerning Jesus' authority and that concerning paying taxes to Caesar if you will, religious authority and political authority. Luke tells us that Jesus was teaching the people in the temple area and proclaiming the good news when a delegation made up of chief priests, scribes, and elders 
approached him. These are the elite of the Jewish people, the members of the Sanhedrin. They are our senators, congressmen, congressional aides, or perhaps our bishops and cardinals and members of the Vatican Curia. As we would expect of such establishment types, their question concerns credentials. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who has given you the authority? He's on their turf. They've not authorized him. So he must be a fake. Where are his bona fides? His yeshiva diploma? His parade permit from the temple police? Now remember the context. Jesus has driven out merchants from the area because a house of prayer had been turned into a den of thieves. His words and his actions echo unmistakably the words and the actions of the prophet Daniel, excuse me, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter seven of Jeremiah. But their question implies a prophet needs a permit to be a prophet. And since they did not give him a permit, no one could have. Their question, you see, is not a question. It is a challenge and a threat. And it is a threat that is terribly revealing of their own assumptions. The temple is not God's house of prayer. It is their property for profit. Worse than Jesus acting like he was Jeremiah is the fact that he threatens their own exousia, their own authority. It's fascinating that the same word about authority here is the word used when Jesus was tested by Satan who promised him authority over all the kingdoms if he would just bend the knee. For they are mine to give says Satan. And Jesus then declared, you shall worship the Lord your God, him alone shall you serve. So Jesus responds to this false question, real challenge, with a question of his own. Tell me, was John's baptism of heavenly or of human origin? Such a simple question, yet it cuts sharply to the corruption inherent in their challenge. Prophets receive their authority from God, not from human institutions. Every Jew knows that. So what about Jesus' predecessor, John, who preached a baptism of repentance and of economic Reform, by the way, they are at once caught in their own duplicity. And the reaction is that of all the deceitful. They discuss this among themselves. <laughs> they went into a huddle. They consulted with each other. They needed to come up with a politically plausible narrative. They are not stupid. They understand the point of Jesus' question. If they say, and this is what, how Luke reports their thoughts or their exchange, if they say John's prophetic mission was from God, then why hadn't they believed him and repented? They clearly had no more recognized John as a prophet than they now recognize Jesus. But to say that John was sent by God would be to acknowledge an authority superior to their own. Prophets need no divinity degree. But they grasp as well that they have fallen into the very trap that they had devised. If they say that John's authority was of human origin, they are both lying they knew as everyone knew 
that John had not attended Candler. <laughs> and they exposed their unbelief in God's authority before the people who do recognize John as a prophet, as the people recognize Jesus as a prophet. Afraid of the very people they ostensibly serve, the boldness of the leaders collapses. They answer Jesus with the biggest lie possible. We do not know where it came from. Doesn't it sound like a congressional hearing? <laughs> they knew all right, just as they knew where Jesus' authority had come from. Their lie involves not their minds, but their wills. To acknowledge an authority from God transcending their own is to cede their own authority in the temple that was meant to be a house of prayer by the God who gives all authority. So Jesus closes this exchange with the simple declaration, neither shall I tell you by what authority I do these things. The simplicity of prophetic speech reveals the tangled duplicity of speech that is not open to truth, but only defends positions of power. Luke then has Jesus turn from this exchange to address the people themselves with a parable about the vineyard owner who repeatedly sent emissaries to get what the vineyard uh, managers owed him and they kept on kicking out his emissaries and finally killed the owner's son so that the owner takes away the vineyard from those owners or managers and gives it to others. He tells this parable to the people, but Luke tells us um, the leaders heard that parable and sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, but they feared the people. They knew that he had spoken this parable against them, which he had. So the leaders shift from direct to indirect entrapment, which brings us to the exchange concerning the payment of taxes to the emperor. This passage has been the subject of endless analysis by those interested in the respective claims to power of pope and emperor. But my interest is only in what Luke shows us about speaking truth in the face of deceit. Now Luke leaves the reader in no doubt concerning the duplicitous motivations and methods of Jesus' opponents. I want to render the Greek here as idiomatically as I can. I don't know why I'm doing this. Is it, is this a, <laughs> the idiomatic with the <laughs> bird chirp idiomatic. The Sanhedrin leaders had Jesus under close observation. The, the Greek word is para teresantes, which means under surveillance. And they sent spies in cathetus. These are people who uh, become embedded uh, in the group. They, they sent people to get in the crowd that Jesus is teaching, right? Who falsely presented themselves as honest. Hypokrinomenus dikaiuseinai. They put on the pretense of being righteous people. So they're, they're, they're sort of implanted in the crowd, right? Um, precisely in order to trap him in his speech, epilabantai autologu. And Luke gives us the purpose, so that they might hand him over to the power and the authority of the governor. This means not the Jewish court, 
with the Roman prefect. Now we know from historical study that the Roman prefect in the border and unstable provinces of the empire had the right called the Ius Gladii. They had the right of the sword. They had the right to execute immediately at the, even the slightest quiver of revolutionary unrest. And we know from Josephus that Pontius Pilate was not reluctant to exercise this option, especially at feasts like the Passover when the huge crowds in Jerusalem, up to a million people, tended to seethe with resentment against Roman occupation. The secret agent's first words seem to compliment Jesus, but their flattery actually serves to set him up. Teacher, they say, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and you are not a respecter of persons. This is the key line. It, it, it's, it, it, that you don't pros upon la vain. The term means you're fair or you're impartial, but at root it means you don't respect, you're not scared of anybody. You're not, you know, that you're, you're not, you're, you're not a kiss ass. You're not, you know, <laughs> you're somebody who'll stand up and tell it like it is. And that you will teach the way of God on the basis of truth. Well, they, they don't believe a single word of this. If they did, they would not have accepted the commission as secret agents and set out to get a prophet arrested for insurrection. So it's, a, it's, it's as Al Franken would say, it's lies told by liars who lie. <laughs> they are only setting a trap from which they think there is no escape. And so they ask, is it lawful, existing, which could also be, is it necessary? Is it necessary for us to pay a tax or a tribute, taxes that are fought on, to Caesar or not? Is it lawful for us as Jews to pay a tax to Caesar, to the Roman occupier? The question seems to present the perfect no-win set of options. He is trapped, they think, between the Jews who equate true religion with national independence of Rome and the Jews who cooperate with Roman authorities in order to preserve ancient religious institutions. He's caught between the Baptists and the Episcopalians. If Jesus says they should pay the tax, he will lose favor with those people who in the time of feasts are whipped up to patriotic favor, fervor. But if he says that they should not pay the tax, he is exposed as a revolutionary before the vigilant Roman authority. Either answer brings him down. The murderous malice of the simple-seeming question is neatly hidden by the flattery that precedes it. Surely, an honest teacher like Jesus, who is no respecter of persons, will teach the way of God in truth in this circumstance. The duplicity of those questioning Jesus on this point um, to be sure, is linked to their hypocrisy. For if they themselves had not been paying the tax, they would not be there to challenge this populist prophet. And they neatly suppress the fact that a major part of their financial resources is derived from trading in imperial and other coinage in the temple precincts. Luke tells us that Jesus 
recognized their cleverness, their craftiness, their deceit, panurgia. He, he saw the trap that they had set and asked them to show him the coin with which the tax was paid and to identify the image on one side of the coin and the inscription on the other side of the coin. And he asked them, whose are they? And they say, Caesar's. The emperor produced the coin, which was the medium of payment. So Jesus neatly sidestepped the impossible dilemma by this simple declaration, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. It's the emperor's coinage. He can demand it back. But then Jesus adds the phrase that turns their phony dilemma back on them. Give to God what is God's. Jesus simply rejects the false equivalence of religion and politics. They are, in truth, radically incommensurate. There is no political position that aligns perfectly with God's kingdom. And the rule of God is never adequately expressed by any political posture. Being a faithful Jew means worshiping the Lord your God with all one's heart and all one's mind and all one's life. Such devotion can neither be abetted by nor impeded by the one who imposes and collects taxes, no matter what he calls himself or is called by others. It is not the image on a coin that constitutes idolatry. It is a derangement of the will that mitigates the absolute demands of obedience to God with the relative advantages of expedience for the self. Jesus' simple and clear distinction between true religion, giving back to God everything, for everything comes as a gift from God, and human politics, paying a ruler taxes as required. This simple and clear distinction only became muddied when Christianity wedded itself fatefully to imperial power under Constantine and when popes decided to govern Europe and not the life of the spirit. Thus, centuries of anguished exegesis on this passage. Thus, turning Jesus' simple speaking of truth in the face of deceit into another and even more complex form of deceit, namely that of finding scriptural authority for human ambition, whether that of the pope or the emperor. Now, I don't think this short reflection has distorted the meaning of Luke's text, I hope not. And I do hope that the plain reading of this text makes its contemporary relevance fairly clear. We live in a culture of gotcha discourse, whether in the traditional press and media, or in blogs, or in Twitter, or in Instagram, and the other digital means of intemperate, impulsive, and thoughtless expression. Yesterday, we heard how Jesus measures adherence to God's rule. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Today, I fear that we have grown confused about the difference between speaking truth to power, the work of authentic prophecy, and distorting truth for the sake of power. Even if the power is as lowly and despicable 
as that achieved by anonymous internet trolling. The letter of James tells us, be quick to hear, be slow to speak, be slow to anger, for human anger does not work the righteousness of God. If we look into our own hearts and our own patterns of speech, both among ourselves and in our culture, we can see how far we fall short of this level of wisdom and how much further short of the courageous simplicity of the prophet Jesus and the simple rule of love he espouses. Thank you for your attention. you weren't coming today. Didn't you say you, were, you couldn't come? Oh, okay. Well, I'm, glad, I'm glad you're here. We, we have Craig Cleland. We, we can, we, we, we're glad. It's been all rest easy all now. Rest easy now. Um, we have um, about 12 or so minutes. Uh, we'll, we'll finish right at one. Uh, but we have some time for questions if you have any in the room? I have a couple of my own, but I would love to hear yours. If anybody has any questions, I will come to you with the microphone so that it can be well heard and picked up on the recording. Yes. Now that you've been identified, Craig, we will actually. Professor Johnson, I was going to ask, in later centuries, these fights and disputes between Jesus and the various sects of the Jews um, led to anti-Semitic readings um, in theology of, of the text. I just wondered if you would comment on, on that transposition of the context into other contexts. You have Luther, for example. Right. No, up on uh, no I'd be happy to. Um, uh, and of course, it's, that's a particularly important question in this week when um, passion plays like that at Oberamagal, um, and um, when pogroms would be carried out against Jews on the basis of blood slanders and so forth. Um, it's a complex question. Um, Christianity did not invent anti-Semitism, but it perfected it. Um, and we gave it a distinctive twist because of the role that the Gospels assign Jews in um, the Gospel portrayal of Jesus and of his death in particular. Now, let me just say three things. One is that there has been a long history of reading Paul as the center of Christian theology, which I think is absolutely right, but of reading Paul in terms of grace versus law. And Luther, of course, picked that up in terms of Reformation against Catholics. Um, but Jews throughout European intellectual history have always been the default foil. And this is even after the Enlightenment, when Christianity is abandoned, Judaism and, and is still remains the kind of intellectual point of opposition. So the huge problem for Christian theology is, what is the gift, what is grace, if it is not not being Jewish? And, and centuries of supersessionism, of saying, you know, we've got the gift and, and we're not Jews, um, has left us with empty pockets when it comes to saying, well, why do we gather together? What is the gift if it's something more than not being Jewish, right? Second, so that's a, that's, that's a theological bias of Marcionism built deeply into the Christian tradition. The second point is that historically, I think that the Synoptic Gospels are probably 
as right as we can be that there was involvement of Jewish leaders in the death of Jesus. I don't think that this is terribly unhistorical because you have to get from a, a prophetic figure to a revolutionary figure with no, and have to make that transition somehow. So uh, it's very interesting that when, in Luke's gospel, when the Sanhedrin hands Jesus over to Pilate, they say he is uh, Christos Basileus, Christ King, uh, to make sure that Pilate doesn't miss uh, the political nuance of what Jesus um, is claiming. But that is a far cry from the involvement of all the Jewish people in the death of Jesus. Only Matthew's gospel in chapter 27, 25 has the people cry out, all the people cry out, his blood be upon us and upon our children. Luke, for example, clearly differentiates between the simple people who followed Jesus and the leaders who were involved in rejecting him. Thirdly, you are quite correct. The tendency has been, especially since the Gospel of John tended to dis eliminate distinctions between leaders and people and various sects, and simply, for the most part, calls the opposition to Jesus the Jews, um, has abetted a long history in which Jews have um, borne the dubious double distinction of being kept alive so that Christians would know who they weren't, but, but always abused because they weren't Christians. Uh, and so, you know, the Holocaust doesn't come out of nowhere. The Holocaust comes out of centuries um, of specifically French and German, European, continental anti-Semitism, which God save us, is back again. Um, and this is, is a, a, a wonderful book. <sighs> Darn it, I can't, I reviewed it and I can't remember the author's name. But it's called Judaism, the Western Tradition. And, and its point is exactly that the Jews are always sort of the, the point of um, we're not them. And this is in, it's in Marx, it's in Durkheim, it's in every enlightenment figure. It doesn't go away because you're not Christian anymore. So it's a, it's a really difficult issue. Right now on Emory's campus and campuses throughout this country, there is a wave of anti-Semitism in the name of Palestinian freedom. And it, it's, it's become extremely difficult to speak positively for the Jewish people in the university context. It has become, I mean, it's hard to imagine, but we have come that far only, what, uh, 80 years after the Holocaust. And um, that's where we are. Thank you. That's an excellent question. I gave people time to have another question. I see one over here, Louisa. We have one right here, too. Okay, wonderful. I will come back. I appreciate the connection between the biblical story and the modern times. Um, and one of the things that seems to be at topic is speaking up about your belief or not. So I was just, it seems like there's always present a sort of moral mixed message about whether to speak, call it truth to power or not. There's the possibility that you are lacking moral fortitude right. if you do not speak up, but if you do speak up, you are divisive and I don't know what other adjectives are possible. You will be quickly crushed. You're, 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 not, you're not hearing the other, you're yeah. being partisan. So what is the biblically rooted advice that uh. you have <laughs> to know? It's not in the Bible, but it's in one of my books. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> that's a superb question. And I, I, um, my family is uh, six children, six siblings, 
divided right down the middle, three and three. Three uh, believers in God and more conservative and three who are uh, evolutionary psychologists and, and progressive, as they call themselves. So we can't talk about religion or politics. We just can't and still be family. And many people have experienced that. Um, while I was visiting one of my conservative side of my family, um, I was asked by my nephew, well, Luke, how do you convince people? I said, I'm, I, I don't, I've never thought that way. Um, I think, I mean, as a teacher, it's a little odd saying that you're not trying to convince people, but I'm not, I, I'm not trying to convince them of my opinion. And it, I think that there's a very fine line between proselytism and witness. We've sort of gotten in the game of having to convince others rather than simply stating where we see things from where we stand. And so the, the, the biblical approach, if you will, is narrative. This, this is my narrative, right? But I, and I wanna hear yours. And if we hear each other's stories, we come closer together. And, and so it, it's, we've gotten in this place of I've got to speak up for somebody or for this, and I've got to you know, speak truth to power, as it were, wherever the power is. And you're right. If you don't speak, you're a coward. You know, if you speak, you live in endless hostility and have to shut down your Facebook page or whatever. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I really do think that the social media has been a disaster. I think that um, we have this distinctive contemporary neurosis called, what is it called, FOMA? Fear of, of missing out. Um, you know, that you, we've got to know what the latest buzz is on absolutely everything. So the, the notion of being quick to hear and slow to speak is very foreign to us. You know, we, we talk just like that. I hope that's helpful. I and it, and I'd, I think that when we hear people's narratives, we often come to such a more empathic position with regard to them. Remember we ended yesterday by talking about being merciful as God is merciful to us. So often people's stories help us understand why they are where they are you know, how they have gotten to that point. And if we can understand that, you know, we can invite them also to understand how we've gotten to where we are. And mutual storytelling and mutual listening of stories is a great healer of, of uh, political and, re and religious hostility. Do we have time for one more? We do, and I'm, but who had the question? Did somebody have this one right here, he had his hand. And I'm reminded, I'm not gonna answer your question for you, but I'm reminded of that beautiful quote of a meeting between the British missionary and Mahatma Gandhi. Tell me your beautiful name, names of God, and I will tell you mine. Yes. This may be too long a question. It's a f it was a follow-up on the first question, and that is the, the writers the, the in the Gospels are all Jewish. They're, they're speaking, I assume, to the Jewish community. Um, how did that get turned over the, the years? Yeah. Presumably they were looking for reform yeah. within the Jewish. Yeah, it's, um, you know, whether or not the gospel writers were themselves Jewish, certainly Jewish, Jesus was, and certainly his prophetic words are within the context of internal Jewish reform. Yeah. Um, that's, the situation changes when very rapidly, within 30 years, um, most Jews decide this isn't the message for them. Not, not Jesus' prophetic teaching, but Jesus as Lord. But calling Jesus Messiah is, is not a problem for most Jews. Not a very good Messiah, but he could, could be a Messiah. He could be an anointed one. It's calling him Lord, or in effect, divine, that distinguishes Christians from Jews. 
And so within about 30 years, the majority of people who, want, who will confess the resurrection and therefore confess Jesus as Lord are mostly Gentiles. And so Christians and Jews become two rival versions of interpreting the story of Israel. And Judaism also changes dramatically because the tradition of the scribes and the Pharisees becomes rabbinic Judaism in the year 200 and Talmudic Judaism, which is, if you go down you know, La Vista Road and you have an Orthodox uh, Jewish uh, synagogue, this is the tradition of the scribes and Pharisees. And that's quite different than the sort of mixed bag that you got in the first century. Judaism becomes Judaism partly because Christians became Christians. And so what you end up with then is not an argument within the family. You become Democrats and Republicans. I can't talk to these people. Thank you so much. As you make your way uh, steadily down, I'm going to commit a literary crime. I'm going to quote one of your books. But it's a beautiful way for us to be sent out. You have um, uh, been a leader in this city and offered the gift of ministry and teaching for many years. And I know there are people in this room who've received that gift directly, and we have received it directly today. And we're so thankful. As somebody who's in the, uh, the Jesus business, um, I do love this quote from your, um, from your book, Prophetic Jesus, Prophetic Church, that Luke's gospel, and that's the gospel that we'll hear on Easter Day, that offers an image, a Jesus that offers a utopian vision of Christian possibilities. Or as I like to say to my kids, the glass is still half full. Um, that, that we're about possibilities and we're about what, what could be and even in the most difficult of struggles. So thank you for your inspiration today. Please do go and ask me the most difficult questions now, one-on-one. -on -one. We're so appreciative of your time with us. Thank you, Professor Johnson.